Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and if you would please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word, looking this evening particularly at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Again, that's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not, long, you will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be few in, left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to this, this great passage, which moves from exhortation even to prophecy, prophesying about the days which would come when you sent your Son to this world to turn back the hearts of your people to God, that day when your people would give up idolatry and serve you, the true living God, with all their hearts and with all their souls. Lord, help us to, to see the importance of this particular passage, that our eyes would be opened to the great things which have been won for us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be, Lord, that we ourselves would always be enabled by your Spirit to serve you with all of our hearts, to find you because we have been given the hearts to seek you with everything that we have, and that in so doing we would not worship idols, but that we would worship you in truth. For we ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If I were to ask you, what is the main storyline of the Bible? What, what is the, the overarching narrative that the Bible tells? Uh, what would be your response? Think, think about that for just a few minutes. What, what would it be that you would say is, is the main storyline of the scriptures? Perhaps you could answer in a number of ways, actually, but perhaps you may say, you know, the idea of death and resurrection is perhaps a good storyline, a good way to, to describe the overall story of the Bible, that with the, with the fall Mankind was plunged into death, and yet the Bible is about restoring man to life with God in his presence. 
which is ultimately seen when, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a, a theme that we could trace all the way through the Bible, and it would be a good representation of the story of the Bible, the story the scriptures are, are, are telling us. Another one may be sin and righteousness, that the Bible is a story of how man fell into sin and was then, because of this, under the wrath and condemnation of God until there was a righteousness provided in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All these two would be good representations for the story of the Scriptures. There is another one, though, that is actually very, very common, particularly in the Old Testament and in the prophets, and that is the story of exile and restoration. That because of our sin, we are left far from God. And yet there would be one who would come who would restore us back to fellowship with God. Now, I mentioned that this is actually one of the the primary themes in in the prophets, that there would be a time when Israel would go into exile because of its sins, which is even prophesied right here in Moses. But there would be a time, the, the prophets tell us, when there would be a new exodus that would come, when the Messiah would bring the people back from all the nations to which God had scattered them. And part of what would happen then is he would turn, the Messiah would turn the hearts of his people back to God so that then they would seek him. They would give up all of their idols. They would seek God. And in seeking him, they would in fact find him. Now, the prophets, when they prophesy of this theme of exile and restoration, they're very much picking up on this particular passage. It's really a, a, this passage is really highly significant for all of scripture. Um, And even we have this, this kind of thing is really uh, amplified in in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, where you have the same things being developed. But really this passage, along with Deuteronomy chapter 30, are really the foundation for very much of what the prophets prophesy in terms of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Possibly even the dominant way in which salvation is described in the prophets is this theme of exile and restoration. So it is Uh, A highly significant passage here as Moses begins to prophesy of what's going to happen. And the reason why he is now moving into prophecy, if you remember, if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, and how up to this point, Moses has really been giving the people a great exhortation not to fall into the worship of idols. And he's used the the, uh, account of what happened with the people of God at Mount Sinai as the, the predominant event that would be Uh, the basis of his exhortation for the people of God not to worship idols. Now, after really completing that exhortation at the end of verse 24, now he moves in verses 25 through 31, this passage right here, to describing what will happen to the people of God. He's exhorting them not to fall into idolatry in verses 1 to 24, but now, beginning in verse 25, he says, and actually you will fall into idolatry, and this is what's going to happen. In prophecy, you are going to be sent off into exile, but the exile will not be the end of the story. God will be merciful, he'll be gracious to you, and he will bring you back. And this is what happens with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who restores the people of God from their exile away from uh, away from God himself. And so really, Deuteronomy chapter 4, particularly verses 25 through 31, is really a preview of all of redemptive history. It's a, a preview of the storyline of the scriptures. The rest of the Old Testament and even into the New, the rest of the Bible is going to be a working out of this prophecy, that the people of God are going to be brought into the land, and then they are eventually going to fall into sin. They're going to be exiled. 
but the Lord Jesus Christ will bring them back. And so we're going to look at this particular passage then under just those two headings, exile and restoration, exile and restoration. That's really uh, the way that this, this passage is broken up. So ver- first in verses 25 through 28, we'll look at Moses's description, his prophecy of the exile. And then in verses 29 through 31, we will look at his prophecy of the restoration. So again, just restor- uh, exile and restoration. So look with me again at verses uh, 25 through 28 as we uh, dive into the passage here. Now, the way the exile is described is there is uh, a threat given with regard to the people of God in verse 25 that they that they are not to, uh, uh, particularly regarding the sin that they are not to commit, and that's idolatry. So there's the, the, the sin described in verse 25, and then the exile proper is described in verses 26 through 28. And so he says in verse 25, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly, there's an assumption now. You're going to be in the land. You're going to be there for some time. And when you do, he's prophesying that you will, in fact, not heed the exhortation that I've just given in verses 1 through 24. You will, in fact, fall into idolatry, make carved images. And when you do, there is a threat given in verses 26 through 28. Now, uh, notice here that the, the threat and the prophecy regarding the sins of the people of God happen regarding a time after they have grown old in the land, that they have been in the land uh, for some time. There's going to be a time when they are going to forget all of the things that God has done for them. Now, if you remember, this has actually been a great theme throughout uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, that they, the people of God are to remember the things which have happened. And it is in their remembering that they will be encouraged and enabled not to fall into the sin of idolatry. But Moses uh, here is saying that they will, in fact, forget. This is always a temptation for the people of God, and it's relevant for us in every age, including our own in the church today. It is very often the case that when God blesses us, that we forget where the blessings come from. So here the people of God are going to be brought into the land. They're going to have all of these blessings with and be in God's presence in a way that they weren't before. And when they enter the land, then they are going to forget. They're going to forget all these things that have happened. Uh, Hosea describes uh, this very thing in Hosea chapter 2, where uh, the people of God are given all of these great blessings from the Lord, and yet they forget, and it actually causes them to ascribe these blessings to their idols. And the reason they do that is because they forget the true source of all the blessings that they have received, and it leads them astray. And brothers and sisters, you have been given many great blessings in this world. You've been given many great blessings as being a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so think of this. When you think of these blessings, do do you often return thanksgiving back to God? For the things which you have received. This was the thing that the, that the Israelites did not do. They forgot where the blessings came from. This is what Moses prophesies. And notice it does not lead them into just small sins. Moses is not threatening them with exile for just, uh, you know, not uh, giving the tithe or something like that. This is, these are major sins, particularly the one he's been talking about all through chapter four, idolatry. It is complete apostasy from God himself. And it is because of this particular sin, idolatry, that the people of God 
are going to go into exile. Really, really, there's nothing worse in life than idolatry. There's nothing worse uh, in this life than the sin of idolatry. And it is really one of the great arguments against those who will think that they are righteous in their own eyes and yet are not Christians or unwilling to serve the Lord. If you do everything else right but refuse to serve God, you have committed the worst of sins because you have refused to recognize the righteousness and the greatness of the God who created you and who sustains your life. This, this sin that Moses is speaking of with idolatry is the absolute worst sin. And as it's been the main focus through Deuteronomy chapter 4, so too here, it is the only sin that's mentioned with regard to the exile. The only sin that's mentioned. When you do this one sin, this is what God will, will use as the evidence against you that you are in fact to go into exile. And so after this, this uh, description of the sin, verses 26 through 28, then give uh, the, the description of the exile itself. Now notice in verse 26, there is courtroom language that uh, Moses uses to describe what will happen. Moses here says that he calls heaven and earth to witness against the people of God. Uh, This is something that's picked up on in the prophets as well. When they threaten exile, they call to mind this particular prophecy. It's also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So for instance, Isaiah 1, the very beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah calls heaven and earth to witness against the people of God. Basically, the idea is all of creation sees what you've done. All of creation can bear witness to the sin which you have committed. And they establish God's right to carry out this sentence against you. It's something we looked at if you were with us for uh, the series through Micah. Micah chapter 6, there is a very similar courtroom scene where there are witnesses brought for both sides. But the witness that God brings is all of creation. I call heaven and earth to witness against you of the sins which you have committed. And so heaven and earth are brought to witness Again, the prophets are picking up on this very passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when they speak this way in, in prophesying about the exile and threatening it. And here, notice that when the exile is described here, uh, there are a number of things that are said. First, they are going to the people of God will utterly perish from the land. They will not be able to be in the land anymore. God will scatter them among the nations, and they will be left few in number among all the, the nations where God will drive them. This is really an exact undoing of the covenant promise that God had made with the people of God through Abraham. You remember when God uh, made the promise to Abraham that he would bless those who were descended from him. He said that he would make uh, the, the nation that comes from Abraham into a great nation. He would make their name great. He would multiply them greatly, and he would give them this land. Now here they're being removed from the land, utterly destroyed, and they are being left few in number and scattered among all the nations. It is the exact undoing of the promises which God had made to Abraham, which even those promises in themselves were meant to be the fulfillment of uh, the the mandate given to mankind in Genesis chapter 1, that you are to fill the earth and multiply. The world is to be full of people who worship God, and yet here the exact opposite is happening. Because of idolatry, the people of God will be few in the land, and few and actually removed from the land itself. But really the culmination, the culmination of the threat of exile is given in verse 28, where Moses says that when you are exiled from God, and when you're exiled from the land, then in all of the nations to which God scatters them, he will cause them to serve God's 
of wood and stone. Part of the threat is that the people of God will actually fall even more into idolatry. God basically saying, fine, if you don't want to serve me, I will scatter you to the nations so that you can have your fill of worshiping these gods of wood and stone. It's basically a statement of God saying he's simply going to give them up. Uh, Very similar to what uh, Paul writes of in Romans 1. Because they did not recognize God or honor him as such, but they worshiped the creature instead of the creator, God gave them up to all of the passions of of their flesh. Because one of the things that's true of sin in this life is that it is self-destructive. It's always self-destructive. And the worst sins are the most self-destructive. And so what God says is, if you will not serve me, I who am the fountain of life, and I in whom are all the blessings of this world, then I will simply give you up so that you can go get your fill of serving these gods who bring you nothing but death. And that is really the great threat of exile here that Moses makes. Now notice there are a number of descriptions for these idols that Moses gives. He says, there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. These are the work of men's hands. You serve now the God who created all things. And yet now you're going to serve the gods who are created by the hands of men. You are going to, if you want, if you will not serve the creator, then I will give you other creatures to serve who are nothing. Their materials are simply wood and stone. They're not even made of of great things. They're obviously perishable materials that have nothing to do with the, the divine being. It's very similar to Isaiah chapter 44, if you remember Isaiah's great description of idolatry, where he says, you know, there's a a man, he cuts down a tree, he uses some of the wood to burn, uh, to burn, to warm himself or to cook something with, and the rest of it, he turns into an abomination. And he looks at what he makes and he says, and there's nothing that can deliver him from the lie that's that's in his hand. He simply cannot do it. And this is the kind of thing that the Israelites will do. If you will give up serving the invisible God, I will give you these gods of wood and stone to serve. And you see how well they can handle you. They, they can help you. Uh, another place in Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 46, I believe, it says that God is the one who has borne you all your life. He's the one who carries you. But, you know, all of the idols of the nations, they actually have to be carried by others. They, they can't do anything. God carries you. Why would you give up this God for the sake of gods that themselves, not only can they not carry you, but they themselves are a burden that you must put on the back of beasts of burden in order to carry them. They are simply the gods of wood and stone, and as such, they're dead. This is what what Moses says. You give up serving the living God for gods which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. They are the gods of death. There's nothing, there's nothing about them that have anything to do with life. If you give up serving the God who is spirit, the God who is in this sense invisible, as Moses has been describing in, in Exodus chapter four, in Deuteronomy chapter four, the God who appeared on Mount Sinai with great thunder and fire. If you give up serving this God, I will simply give you up to worshiping dead and lifeless idols. Now, this is always the exchange. This is always the exchange that happens. We either serve the living God 
or else we serve lifeless things that cannot help us, which lead only to our death. And so e- even though in some ways, though, though this is becoming, it, it's becoming more true that people are serving idols exactly in this way. But in this world, it may be that you think, you know, well, not everyone serves uh, idols of wood and stone, and perhaps there are other things that the world is offering that appear to be uh, wise. Uh, you need to recognize that if you give up the, the, the worship of the one true God and you exchange it for something that the world offers, no matter what it is, it is very much like Moses is saying here, a service of dead idols that can give you absolutely nothing. They, they can't give you anything. And this is always the way the ways of the world are. They're foolish. Like, like the man in Isaiah 44, he cannot see the lie in his own hand. He can't do it. And this is the way the, the world always works in, in all of their supposed, supposed wisdom. They cannot see the lies that they follow as they foolishly go off into death. The ways of the world always end in misery and confusion. But notice here as well, the worst part of it all, the worst part of it all is it's evidence that God has given you up such that now you cannot be with him. Uh, this is really this is really the emphasis. You give up, you give up serving the one true God. And what it means is now you are apart from God. This is this is the, the great reason the exile was so important for the for the Jews and why uh, the land is so important. If you are not in the land, then God is not with you. That's that's the theology. God is in the land. He's in the land in the place where he chose to set his name. And when he scatters you, it means now you are far apart from him, serving gods that can in no way replace him and can benefit you uh, by nothing. They, they can do absolutely nothing for you. You give up, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, a, a fountain of, of life, a fountain of living water, and you hew out cisterns for yourself with holes in it that can do absolutely nothing. You pour the water in, it immediately goes right through and out into the ground. It You get nothing, no blessing at all from it. And brothers and sisters, if you, if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is always your state. Anyone who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your state. You are in exile from God. There are ways in which this was all worked out uh, on the macro scale with the people of God as a whole, with Israel. They're brought into the land, then they're exiled, then they return. But really, every individual heart is uh, in some ways like this as well. If you if you are not one who is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in exile. There's no way in which you have a fruition of the presence of God. Your life is, is misery and confusion until you are restored back from that exile. Now, as I said, this is, this is a prophecy of the things that would happen. And so if we were to ask, when is this fulfilled? Uh, we do remember that this, this was, in fact, fulfilled. This is, again, something the prophets pick up on over and over and over again as the exile gets closer and closer. They constantly use the words of Deuteronomy to remind the people of God, if you keep going down this path, exactly what Moses said is going to happen to you. And ultimately, this did happen. The exile happened with the people of God when they were exiled first, the northern kingdom to Assyria, Assyria, and then the, the southern kingdom to, uh, to Babylon. And it meant, as I said, they were outside of the presence of God to remain there until the Messiah would come and restore them back from their exile, which is exactly what Moses uh, speaks of next. Amazingly, after 24 verses of exhortation about not committing idolatry, about showing us 
the, the, the great glory of God, particularly in his justice and condemnation of all sin, calling God a consuming fire, and then prophesying that the people of God would in fact not listen. They would find out just how much God is jealous for them and a consuming fire, and that they would all go into exile. Amazingly, the very next thing he says is, and then God will be merciful to you. He'll be merciful to you, even though you have no right to worship idols, even though it is an absolute neglect of this great event when God appeared to you in Sinai, even though it is a forgetting of the great uh, salvation that he wrought for you through the Exodus, even though all these things are true, and even though you are going to fall, even so, God will be merciful to you, and he will restore you from exile. Notice what he says in verses 29 and 30 in particular. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, all these things are going to come upon you. When you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, you will be restored. God will bring you back from this exile. Now, how is it that Moses can know for a fact that the people of God will go off into exile and that they will be restored by their repentance. Notice here that that's exactly the way that they're restored. In exile, you will have a change of heart and you will now seek God with all your heart and in seeking him, you will find him. That's that's basically the, the, the way the promise works here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. How is it that Moses can know for sure that they will in fact seek the Lord while they're in exile, as it appears that Moses is prophesying? The reason is because ultimately their turning does not depend on themselves. Their turning does not depend on themselves. This is something that's picked up on particularly uh, more clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and then is picked up on all throughout the prophets, that when the scriptures speak of the return from exile because the people repent of their sins and, and give up serving idols, it is not because they somehow are able to repent of, of their on their own strength and in that way be brought back to God. But over and over again, the scriptures say, when you're in exile, God will place the fear of God within your hearts. He himself will give you the new heart and turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And so, for instance, just to, 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 just to glance very quickly at these uh, prophecies and the way they work, looking very quickly at Deuteronomy chapter 30, same thing. It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you. Same thing. This is a description of the exile. The blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Same thing as Deuteronomy chapter 4. Notice then in, in verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The, the way in which you'll turn is because God himself will put the fear of God within your hearts by changing them, by circumcising the heart so that now you have a heart that serves God. Now, the same thing is said in, in Jeremiah chapter 32. Notice beginning in verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger. There's going to be uh, an exile, and then God's going to gather them. In my fury and in great wrath, I will bring them back to this place and will cause them to dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way 
that they may fear me forever for the good of, of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. There are this, there's the same pattern that uh, though the people of God were going to be in exile, God himself would put the fear of himself within their hearts. And then lastly, very quickly, in, in, Exodus, in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, the great passage of uh, the giving of the new heart, the outpouring of the Spirit, um, which many people quote to uh, show the truth of the doctrine of regeneration. Interestingly, if you go back just one verse, then there is the context which speaks of all of this happening when the people of God return from exile, picking up on the exact same things that Moses is speaking of here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Notice, for I, that is God speaking, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then the verses that we're very familiar with, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take away, I take the heart of stone out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. All throughout the scriptures, as all these prophets build upon this particular passage in, in Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, they make it very clear that what will happen when the people of God return from exile is that God will sovereignly, in his grace, put the fear of himself within the hearts of his people. Now, this is one of the, the, the great statements of, of God's grace. You know, God gives in the gospel this wonderfully free call. If anybody will repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. If anybody will do it, they'll be saved. And even if God only did that, he would be a God of perfect grace. And yet, seeing that man in his exceeding hardness of his heart, that none of them will come, that not a single person will come. God in his grace goes even further and says, for those whom I have loved before the foundation of the world, I will make this offer and then I will put the fear of myself within their hearts so that they will love me all the days of their lives and have this full blessedness. This is exactly what Moses is prophesying of. The whole history of Israel is a history of God in his grace saying, if you will be faithful to me, you will have all of these blessings. And then the people of Israel, by and large, rejecting it over and over again. And God being patient for a thousand years as he awaits uh, the, the coming of the, of the exile, which eventually comes. For a thousand years, he's patient with them. And after all of that grace, then he says, and when you fail, I will show you even more grace and gather you and place in your heart the fear of me, which you've never had which you've never been able to have and be able to muster up on your own because of your own sin. God provides perfectly for the restoration of his people. Now, I have been saying for some time now that this is all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and um, that this is really the, the timing of what's, of what's going on. Now, is there anything in the text that, that gives us a clue as to when these things will be fulfilled? There actually is something. There's one little statement that's made in, in verse 30. Notice uh, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you 
in the latter days, in the latter days, then you'll you'll be restored. After that, you'll be restored. But there's this phrase, in the latter days. Now, literally, this phrase can be trans- should be translated, in the end of days. Uh, it's a bit more emphatic in terms of it being the end than just saying the latter days. It's not latter days as opposed to former days, and it could be any stretch of time. It is actually the end of days, the last days, the, the very tail end. And this is actually a phrase that's used over and over again uh, with throughout the scriptures to describe what would come when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, would in fact appear. And so this phrase tells us this is really a an expansion of other things that have been said even to this point uh, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which he would bring salvation for his people. So for instance, the same phrase is used in Genesis 49 to describe the king who would come from Judah in the latter days or in the end of days. Also in Numbers 24, particularly verses 17 and following. This is a prophecy of the king who would come at the end of days, who would have an everlasting kingdom. Uh, The prophet who would uh, cause the Mount Zion to rise up above the highest of the mountains in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. The the prophet, the one who would pour out the spirit upon uh, the people of God, Joel 2, in the latter days, in the end of days. And then also, This is the way the New Testament interprets this because there are a number of phrases that are used to describe the same thing. So, for instance, when it describes the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who comes in the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1, when Christ is speaking with the woman at the well and he says that, you know, you worship what you don't know, the Jews worship what they know, but there's coming an hour, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a a fullness. There's something that's now being fulfilled that is being spoken of, that the age of the spirit has actually come, as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All these things are showing the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning of this end of days. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, this is the advent of the king, uh, the king of kings who pours out the spirit. This is the one who does, in fact, restore his people back to fellowship with God. All of these things, all of these things are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we are to look for when we think of uh, the way in which Christ fulfills all of the prophecies of Scripture is that in the latter days, he will restore his people from exile. That is to say, not so much that they will change their location to come back into a land which had been promised before, but rather that they will be restored to fellowship with God the thing to which restoration ultimately points. That it is now through the Lord Jesus Christ that you have access again to God, though you were exiled from his presence. This is what it means to return to the land, to to return to the place where God had chosen to set his name. Now notice as well in this passage, this is for those who repent. This is the, the, the great emphasis of the passage. All these blessings will come upon you when you seek the Lord with all your heart. Now, there are a number of things we can say about repentance, but notice here in this particular passage, the emphasis is on the manner in which you pursue the Lord, and particularly the level of zeal. Notice here, it is total engagement with God, all the heart. You will find him when you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you turn to the Lord and obey his voice completely, then it is the time when you will find him. Ultimately, God God does not require of you anything that's half-hearted. He really demands your entire heart. He demands your entire heart. He demands that you would turn to him with everything that you have. 
And notice as well, there is a promise here that if you do turn to him with all your heart, you will find him. That is to say, if you don't turn to him with all your heart, you have no chance of finding him. If you do turn to him with all your heart, you have no chance of missing him. You have no chance of missing him if you turn to him with all your heart. He will guarantee that he will be found by you if you turn to him with all your heart. If you want to know where God is, so to speak, if you can't feel like you can't find him, he is in the place where your heart is fully engaged in seeking him. He guarantees that, he, that you will, will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. Now, very often in this life, God will humble us to show us our need of him. Perhaps your life feels scattered and like it's in chaos. Really, the, the answer of the scriptures to that is you need turn to God in repentance, seek him with all your heart, and you will be restored. This is the blessing that comes for all those who seek him with all their hearts. And so this is the description then of the restoration um, from exile in verses 29 to 30. Notice in verse 31, there is a description of God in his character, which shows why it is that these things are happening. The reason why God is going to exercise his sovereign grace and gather a people that really he had, even in his grace, had no obligation to go after, to pursue, to bring back. And he's going to give them a heart to fear him with all their hearts. Uh, there is a description now in verse 31 of why it is that God does these things, the reasons why. And this is really given through a number of interesting, semi-ironic reversals for things that have been said earlier in the passage. So for instance, in verse 24, we see that God is cons- God is called jealous and a consuming fire. And yet in the beginning of verse 31, now he is the God who is merciful. So even though even though it's because God's jealousy and that the fact that he's a consuming fire that's led to the exile, which is true, it's, it's always true, as uh, Hebrews 12 says at the very end, our God is a consuming fire, uh, it still remains to be true, and yet God is also compassionate. Whereas God's jealousy and being a consuming fire leads to the exile in, in, in some ways and that he must punish sin, so too his compassion is the basis for why he and his grace brings his people back from exile. It's, it's the reason why he will have mercy and grace on a people in the latter days. And there's another thing that's said here uh, in verse 31. Particularly, he says, he will not forsake you nor destroy you. This word destroy is the word uh, that can also be translated corruption. And there's actually a play on words here with verses 16 and 25 as the people of God themselves uh, are, des- are, uh, are described. Particularly, if we look at verse 25, Notice it says that the people of God will act corruptly. It's the same word as this word for destroyed. He will not destroy you. Uh, And this is actually the exact same wordplay that God uses in Genesis 6, but to the opposite effect. So in Genesis 6, the people of God corrupt their ways or, you know, destroy their ways or whatever. And because of that, God himself will corrupt them or destroy them and the world is destroyed. Here, the people of God are described as doing the exact same thing, the exact same language, same words used for Noah. The, the people of God will corrupt their ways, but God will not corrupt them. He will, he will not actually carry out uh, his corruption against them like he did in the days uh, of Noah when he gave to the people of God, exact, the people of the whole world, exactly what they deserved. Now he will act in his mercy in, uh, again, a very interesting kind of reversal. There's also the, a interesting reversal with the idea of forgetting. 
The people of God all throughout this passage, as I've said, are exhorted not to forget God. And if they go off after idols, it will be evidence that they have forgotten him. And even though it is that they will forget him, God, the reason why they'll be restored is because though they forget him, God will not forget them. And this is something that we see all throughout the scriptures. People of God forget God, but God does not forget them. He will not forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. If God were as forgetful of you as you are of him, you could not be saved. It's exactly because though the people of God forget him, he still remembers his covenant and is willing to carry it through even when his people are faithless, that the people of God are in fact saved in the end. God is wonderful in his mercy and grace, and it's because of who he is that he saves his people. If, if God were only just, he would be perfectly right to leave his people in exile and to utterly destroy them. But he is more than just that. He is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you want to know why it is that God does save his people, it is because God is who he is. God is who he is as a God of mercy and a God of grace. And really all throughout Deuteronomy, we're going to be moving quickly into parts of Deuteronomy where they're more sermonic, where Moses is basically preaching to the people of God. And over and over again, these reasons for God's gracious actions to his people come up, that God is gracious by nature and that he will always remember his covenant, which he made with the fathers, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just as it was crucial for the people of God to remember these things, so too it is for you. All of the things that we have seen in which all these things have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of them reveal these same things. God is a God of mercy and grace. He will not forsake you. He will not destroy you. He will remember his covenant always. And it is for this reason that he is worthy of our worship and should have it all the days of our lives. Is, is he not worthy? If God has done all of these things for us, prophesied so long ago in the days of Moses. Is he not worthy of our worship? And so exile and restoration is in fact one of the key themes that is worked out throughout the scriptures. And as I mentioned, the way the storyline of the the Bible goes, it is worked out on the grand scale of all the people of God. But really it is worked out for the individual as well in exactly the same ways. If you are outside of Christ, you are in exile away from God. But if you turn and seek God with all your heart, you will find him. You will find him. This is the the longing of every heart, that that the heart would be restored to fellowship with God. As Augustine has said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray. Father, how we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have access once again to you and great fellowship with you. O Lord, there is no greater blessing than to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Lord, it it is pure joy and blessedness. Father, forgive us when we do run after idols and be merciful to us. Grant to us, Lord, that as a church not one of us would be lost and that you would give to us the new heart as it was promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, building on these very passages. Lord, would you do it for the sake of the glory of your own name? 
For, Lord, how can it be that your name would be profaned among the nations? Save a people for yourself, O God, that your worship might be established. For the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.